Well, did you know that the world was supposed to end yesterday? Did you hear about that? Apparently in California, it broke into TV news earlier in the week that the world was going to end this week. It all comes from a self-described specialist in research and investigation in biblical matters by the name of David Mead, who claimed that the world was ending this Saturday, predicting the rapture would take place as foretold in the book of the Revelation, and a mysterious planet X would collide with the Earth. NASA has repeatedly said there is no planet X. But he finally backed down from his calamitous prediction and said, well, it's not going to happen just yet. Although the MSU football team maybe wished it would have. (laughs) He said, this only marks the beginning of all the catastrophes that will start. The world is not ending, he backtracked, told the Washington Post. It's just the beginning of a series of events, and he bases this on a numerical code from the book of the Revelation and says that the solar eclipse in August, the hurricanes, Irma, Harvey, and others that are coming are mere omens. Such foolishness. And the world laughs. I found it interesting, though, that a man by the name of William Cummings, I don't know his spiritual position or views, but he wrote in USA Today that the world is definitely going to end, just probably not this Saturday. He said, the bad news is the world is going to end. The good news is we probably have a billion years to enjoy ourselves on this planet before it happens. In the article, he quoted Richard Benzel, professor at MIT of planetary science. And this individual said, yes, the sun is going to fail and the world is going to end. And he even gave 12 reasons, 12 uh, things that causes the catalyst that may bring the world to the end. The sun's failure was the first he mentioned. Nuclear war is another possibility. Biological weapons, global pandemic, a black hole, a supernova, overpopulation, climate change, aliens, or robots. And he never once mentioned God. That's the way of the world. I agree with the article. The world is going to end. That's all I agree with. The Bible says, yes, the world as we know it is coming to an end, but it issues forth in a new heaven and a new earth where Christ reigns and righteousness dwells. And this world is not some purposeless, meaningless place that is going to end in some kind of cataclysmic catastrophe that no one has any control over and no one has any idea how it's going to take place. No, God is in control and his purposes are being worked out and the book of Ephesians makes it abundantly clear. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and get excited about God's great plan for this world. We've been studying Ephesians chapter 1 and Mike read from the New Living, which I thought was very insightful in several places, and it's a fresh way to, for us to think about verses 3 through 14. Just to review, this is all one sentence, maybe five in our English translations, but one in the original Greek. About 200 words that pour forth in a continuous flow of words without pausing for punctuation or even breath. 
I think it is a great poem of praise because there is this chorus repeated uh, at least three times to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. And while it may be one continuous sentence, it is very Trinitarian in structure, and we can even look at it from that standpoint. For instance, in verse, uh, verse 3, we are told, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So verse 3 says, Every blessing comes to us. And as we stated before, it's not just spiritual blessing. It could be translated blessings that flow from the Spirit. So every blessing that we have issues forth from the Holy Spirit, but they're sent by the Father and the Son collectively. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So every blessing comes from the Spirit, verse 3, and then he begins to enumerate the blessings that come, first of all, from the Father. And he mentions in verse 4 that we've been chosen in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he's predestined, perhaps a better term might be marked out for us, the plan, the purpose that we should be adopted as his sons through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given to us in the one he loves. So blessings from the Father all the way through verse 6. And now we begin to folk, focus on the blessings from the Son. The focus shifts from the Father to the Son. From eternity past to eternity present. From heaven to earth. From before time to the fullness of time. And we begin to talk about these great blessings of the Son. We should never think of the work of the Trinity as being independent of one another. They work together. And yet each person in the Trinity has their own special, unique ministry. God is one, not three. But he manifests himself in three distinct persons who work in harmony, who are together the Godhead, the fullness of the one who fills everything. And I want you to note that in this great sentence, Christ is predominant. The Lord Jesus dominates all of Paul's thoughts and his vision. It's almost as though Paul feels compelled to put Jesus into every sentence. Did you notice that? In Christ, from Christ, through Christ, for Christ. It's just all there. And the passage we read from Colossians was a passage written at the same time, approximately, when Paul was in prison and is saying the same thing, only with different words. Well, let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus, according to this passage? Verse 2 says that he is the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 tells us that he is indeed from the Father. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes from the Father. We know in other places that he is the Son. But I like what verse 6 says about him. 
And the NIV has translated it this way. I think this is especially unique and important. It talks about all things are to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given to us in the one He loves. Who is Jesus? The one the Father loves. Does that ring a bell? With some verses in the history of Jesus? How about at his baptism, when the Spirit came down from heaven, and we read in Mark 1 and verse 11, the voice from heaven saying, this is the Son I love. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, that's Mark chapter 9, again a voice comes from heaven, this is the Son I love, listen to what he has to say. And all throughout Scripture, there is repeated this wonderful refrain, the Father loves the Son. In the Gospel of John especially, we see it repeated over and over again. Just listen to these verses. John 3, 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. He goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things. Or how about John 15 in verse 9? And the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you. And it goes on in the great chapter 17 where Jesus is praying and he says, I, the Father, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the Son whom he loves. The Father loves the Son. Does anyone have any doubt of that? I mean, if you even give a casual nod to the trustworthiness of the Scripture, you are convinced of that. Now let me tell you this. God loves you just as much. Wow. How do I know that? Because as a believer, I'm in Christ. And everything Christ has is now mine. R.W. Dale, a great theologian who preached in London in a couple generations before, said, Christ dwells forever in the infinite love of the Father. And since we are in Christ, the love of God for us is ours in the same wonderful manner. Think about that for a moment. And that will cause you to say, Praise God. But I'm so unlovely. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Some of you don't believe that. You, you just know that's the right thing to say. And if someone ever agrees with you, you get angry. I'm a horrible sinner. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not as bad as you. <laughs> We're fishing for compliments sometimes when we ought to say, I am a sinner and whatever you say about me, you can say far more, far worse, if you only knew. Oh, we're not as bad as we could be, but we are sinners in need of redemption and forgiveness. But once we're saved, once we're placed in Christ, God views us as being in Christ, and he loves us as much as he loves the Son. And God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were still rebels and sinners, Christ died for us. So what about these wonderful blessings that come from the Son? Returning to Ephesians chapter 1, we read, 
Verse 6, Jesus is the one he loves. Verse 7, and in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, which leads to the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Well, let's look at that word redemption for a moment. It's helpful for us to remember that there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote these words. And Paul himself was in bondage to Rome, although he called himself the Lord's prisoner. Here, Paul begins to talk about a word that would have been very common in Roman days, redemption. Roman slaves were bought and sold like pieces of furniture. But a slave could be freed if someone would pay the purchase price for their freedom. It was high. It was expensive. And someone might buy a slave to make that slave their property, but then out of a great gesture of love, give that slave their freedom. Men and women, even young people, were put into slavery. Some slavery in that day was simply like a job. You gave yourself to a, uh, to a business owner for life. And other slavery was quite harsh. But the fundamental idea of redemption is that of setting a person free who has come to belong to someone else. The idea of redeeming them and setting them free. This is the epicenter of God's plan right here. The purpose of redemption of forgiveness, of reconciliation found in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you're studying this book, remember that Paul is writing both to the Jews and to the Greeks. The Jews would have been very familiar with the idea of redemption in the Old Testament because there was a way for them to have their sins forgiven and it was this whole idea of having an animal sacrifice. And the animal had to shed his blood. Instilled deeply in the consciousness of every Old Testament person was the fact that sin could not easily be set aside, forgotten, or ignored. No, you had to bring an animal. And that animal had to lose its life and the blood captured and put on the altar itself to atone for sin. Hebrews 9 echoes the words out of the book of Leviticus without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. The price is high. But some people in the Roman days paid the price to set a person free. And Paul, referring to what happened in the Old Testament, reminded them that your redemption through animal sacrifice, that was the only way, the giving of life so that your sins could be forgotten. But then, now there's a better way. There's a new and living way. It's not an animal. It's God himself who becomes the son and the sacrifice. In Christ, we are set free. The idea of exodus is here. The whole motif of the exodus for the Jew. Remember you were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years? Yes, we remember that. And God through Moses set you free 
And it was the Paschal lamb that was sacrificed on the night before and the blood on the doorpost so the death angel would not come in the house. And then you were set free, the exodus. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, we do. Redeemed from bondage. And every Jew knew what it meant. I find it interesting that Jesus uses this same language on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the Gospel according to Luke, we read about Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Remember that scene? Moses and Elijah come back, these Old Testament personages, alive, present, and Jesus is talking with them, and they appeared in this glorious splendor, and Jesus was talking with them about his departure, and the Greek word for departure is exodus. He was talking about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, immediately our minds go to his death. But captured in this wonderful world, word of Exodus is not just death, but what results in the death is redemption. And I think Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about something that they really personally hadn't uh, gone into depths with. They knew Messiah was coming, but he said, I'm talking to you about going to Jerusalem and my Exodus, which is not my death only, but the redemption of all souls. I think on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were talking about personal salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, you are set free. It's an exodus from the bondage of the world, from the bondage of the law, from bondage to Satan's power. Your master is not Pharaoh, but Satan. And when you trust Christ, you are set free. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you don't go to church very often, this whole idea of blood might make you a bit queasy and uneasy. Some people are queasy when they see the sight of blood, and theologically, some people are upset when they hear the talk of blood. I remember when I first studied some of these truths, one of my earliest sermons, and my parents came, and they had not grown up in a Bible-believing church, and they had never heard a subject on the blood, and I preached for 40 minutes on the blood and scared them half to death. And some of you might think, this sounds really weird. Well, understand this. It means the death of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, without the giving of life, there's no remission. And Jesus shed his blood willingly, voluntarily, gave his life. And as they picked up the blood of the animal sacrifices for atonement, it's the blood of Christ that is recognized before the altar in heaven and our sins are forgiven. That's the result, verse 7. The price is the blood of Christ. Redemption is our setting free from bondage, which results in the forgiveness of sins. There is no greater truth in all the world than this. My sins are gone. What does forgiveness mean? To take away. To mean It means to carry away. And in the Old Testament, Psalm 103, verse 12, he does not rebuke us or he does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor reward us according to our iniquities. But as heaven is higher than the earth, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. 
thrown into the depths of the deepest sea, never to be found or retrieved again. Our sins are gone. And there was a great way to demonstrate this in the Old Testament sacrifices. They would take one goat and kill it for the sacrifice, and another goat, they would put the blood on that live goat and send the goat into the wilderness, the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that term? And that goat would run away, be taken away, never to be found again. What does that mean? It was a vivid picture of my sins are gone. And my friend, you cannot have peace until you realize your sins are gone. That's why you're not at peace right now. Peace only comes through Christ, and you can't have it until you know your sins are gone. You say, I'm not good enough to have my sins taken away. Of course you are, but Christ is. Make him your Savior. Embrace him. God will put you in Christ. All the righteousness of Christ is yours. All the love of God for Christ is yours, and your sins are totally taken away, like the scapegoat lost into the wilderness. And all of this is done by the riches of God's grace. If we were slaves to sin, we were poor. But now we're adopted sons of God in Jesus Christ, and we are rich. So we read about something else that Christ gives us. Not just redemption, but revelation. Illumination. Understanding. If the first is forgiveness, then this is understanding. For we read that all of this redemption and forgiveness comes, according to the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That is, God has revealed to us the great mystery of having sins forgiven. He's made known to us in a superabundant way and verse 9 goes on to say, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of his will that's according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. So the mystery has to do with Jesus Christ. Now the word mystery is a very interesting word. It's used six times in the book of Ephesians, and it's a little different than sometimes we think of a mystery. You and I sometimes use the word mystery as something that can never be understood. It's a mystery to me, always a mystery to me. When I do marital counseling, I introduce to the husband the word mystery to describe his wife. You know your wife? Yeah, I know my wife. <laughs> oh, poor soul. <laughs> you think you do, and maybe you know something about her, but for men to understand women, it's a mystery. And we often say that with, there's no hope in sight of ever totally understanding. And they would say the same about us. But the mystery in the Bible is something that was beforehand held as a secret, but now has been revealed. Bible mysteries are made known. And we're told in this book, the book of Ephesians, that Christ is the answer to the mystery. That's what it says in verse 9. The mystery of his will is what he purposed in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, again written at the same time, the mystery is Christ in you. Chapter 2, Christ 
is the mystery of God. He's the answer to the riddle. And by the way, every heathen cult had mysteries that no one could know until they were initiated and got in. And even then, you couldn't understand them. And I think Paul is playing on that contrast and saying, now to us who have believed the mystery of a holy God and sinful man and what's going to happen in the end has been made known. Christ is the answer. The heart of the mystery is that God plans redemption through Christ. He plans to reconcile everything in the world through Christ. And that has been revealed to us. Boy, it's so good to be in the know, isn't it? And God has made us in the know through his holy word. Not a puzzle that will never be solved. There still remains to be solved. It is the message. The mystery of his will has been made known to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on in chapter 3 and talk about the mystery of Jew and Gentile becoming one. But here it's the mystery of your sins being forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. But he doesn't stop there. These two are kind of connected, but there's one more blessing that he wants to let us in on, and it's the blessing of consummation or reunification. And he begins to talk about that in verse 10. That is, this mystery, this plan, according to God's good pleasure, that was purchased in Christ, that started out with redemption, ends with everything coming under the headship of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, that is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. You see, sin has fractured this world that God created Everything God made was good. Read Genesis. This is good. This is good. Every day, this is good. Until man was created, and he saw that man was alone, and he said, this is not good. So he made a partner, a companion, someone to complete him. But then in chapter 3, man's sin, we call it the fall. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and since they're the first parents of the whole human race, Their disposition is now passed on to everyone. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. We are created in the image of Adam, which is the image of God defiled. So we have a sin nature, every one of us. The fall has fractured the world. Everything about the world is fragmented and in confusion. There's no harmony. Everything going in an opposite direction and at odds with one another. But notice, a time will come, the fullness of time. This is looking into the future, right? We looked into the past before the foundations of the world. Then we looked into the present, the redemption that God gives to us in time. And now we're looking into the distant future. At some future date, everything is going to be brought into Christ. When everything has reached its fulfillment. When everything has been 
summed up in Christ. The word plan is a very interesting Greek word. It means arrangement. God's government has arranged for everything one day to be united. Here's another interesting word. The Greeks would use it when they would add up a tally of figures, a column of figures, and at the top they would put the answer that they called the sum. It's when everything is gathered up to its proper conclusion. All things are summed up, and here's the answer. And this is the word that Paul is using when he says in the fullness of time, ultimately, all things will be summed up in Christ. All things will be arranged neatly, harmonized in Christ. He's the answer to the riddle. How in the world are we going to solve this mess? Jesus is the answer. I have no problem with helping in humanitarian ways and our own Kelly Sites at this very moment is on the island of Domica doing her best to help people who have been devastated by the hurricane. Nothing wrong with giving humanitarian aid, but the ultimate aid for this sorry world is Jesus. And nothing else will permanently help. There's a divine program that is going on toward a glorious goal. It's not off course. It's not held up and off schedule. But Jesus is going to bring everything to a proper conclusion. He's going to condense all of history into its right summary. By the way, there's only one other time this word is used, summary and uniting. It's in Romans 13, verse 9, that says all of the commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor. The whole second tablet of the Ten Commandments summed up in this one. And Jesus is going to sum up everything. When all the times and seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority have run their course, God's age-long purpose which he planned in Christ will come to its beautiful conclusion. Actually, commencement. Because then starts the glorious world yet to come. There are three major obstacles before God reunites everything in Christ. Obstacle number one, spiritual death needs to be reversed. That's Ephesians chapter 2. The alienation produced in humanity because of our sin needs to be removed and healed. The division of classes, even sometimes among Christians, needs to be healed. That's chapter 3. And then the dark, spiritual, evil powers of this world need to be conquered or suppressed. That's Ephesians chapter 6. It's all going to happen. It's all laid out in the plan. And the plan is working perfectly. Remember that old TV show, The A-Team? It was a crazy show. It was a stupid show. And they would get into chaos and everything was going awry and there were characters who were unique and weird. But in the end, the leader used to say, I love it when a plan comes together. That's all I remember about the show. I love it when a plan comes together. I love reading Ephesians chapter 1 because I love it when a plan comes together. And that's exactly what God is doing. The entire universe will be brought into harmony 
under the headship of Jesus Christ. Notice, a little later on in the chapter, Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 22, God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head. He's the head of the church now. He is the head of the universe now, but we yet don't see everything placed under his feet. That's Hebrews chapter 2. All things have been given to him, but not yet everything has been submitted to him in a visible, obvious way. But one day it will. This is not talking about universal salvation when it says he will bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. It means everything in the cosmos, everything in the universe is going to be united under Jesus Christ. So in the fullness of time, God's creation, God's two creations, the whole universe and the whole church, united, both Old Testament and New Testament, united in Jesus Christ. John Stott put it so beautifully when he said, if we would understand the apostles' perspective in Ephesians 1, we would also share his praise. You say, Pastor, what do you want me to do with all this? <laughs> well, I want you to be saved. If you're not, I want you to have your sins forgiven. Come to Christ, the only one who can save you. And then secondly, I want you to understand the glorious grace that has been lavished upon you with wisdom and understanding from the Father through the Son applied by the Holy Spirit, which is yours now. And to understand the, the apostles' perspective is going to result in praise. For doctrine understood always results in doxology. I love this story. It's a well-known story of some kids in a Sunday school class who are having difficulty answering Bible questions. Teacher was asking questions apparently that were a little too hard, and they were afraid to give the wrong answer, embarrassed, I suppose, so they didn't answer any questions. The teacher, seeing the dilemma, thought he better ask them an easy question that wasn't necessarily connected to the Bible. So he said, okay, class, tell me, what is brown, likes to climb trees, gathers nuts, and has a long, bushy tail. <laughs> there was an awkward pause until a little boy raised his hand and said, well, it sounds like a squirrel to me, but just to be safe, I'll say Jesus. <laughs> the right answer in Sunday school, right? <laughs> just to be safe. The answer to everything is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are so humbled as we bow before your word. And we struggle and grasp, try to grasp the immensity of this wonderful chapter that tells us things that are hard to hard for us to understand, and yet are given to us for our benefit. But let us see simply that if we would want to praise, we need to understand Paul's perspective about the grace that is given to us in Christ, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and one day the world in total harmony because Jesus is the head. If there's someone here today, Lord, who has never trusted you, I pray that today will be the day when they bow their head and say, Lord Jesus, 
save me to the praise of your glorious grace.